On behalf of Calvary Bible Church of Palisadro, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our pastor and teacher, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study designed to help us grow in the Word. Uh, Turn once again this morning to the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 1. We're doing a series entitled, Who is Jesus? In which we're going to be looking at some of the important passages dealing with Uh, The identification of Jesus, we started in the Gospel of John with John's prologue in verses 1 to 18, and this morning uh, we'll be finishing that section up. So our text for this morning is John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. John 1, 14 through 18, if you'll follow along now as I read our text, beginning in John chapter 1, verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. May the Lord bless this reading of his word and our time together in it. You may be seated. These verses are the climax of all that John has been leading up to uh, here in his prologue. And in answer to our question, who is Jesus? I mean, up to this point... John has told us in verses 1 to 5 that Jesus is the eternal word, the second person of the Trinity, the the creator of all that exists, that in him was life, he is the source, the origin of life, and the life was the light of men and shined in the darkness. Last week in verses 6 to 13, John told us that Jesus is the true light, the, the real light, the genuine light which gives light to everyone. That he was in the world, yet the world did not know him, and his own people did not receive him. But to all, John said, who did receive him, who believed in his name, Jesus gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of human will or effort, but of God. And now this morning, as we come to verses 14 to 18, John tells us in verse 14 that Jesus is the incarnate word who is full of grace and truth. In verse 15, there's a parenthetical statement about John the Baptist in which uh, John tells us that Jesus is greater than all the prophets. In verse 16, we learn that Jesus provides abundant grace for all who believe. In verse 17, that grace and truth come through Jesus. And in verse 18, that Jesus has made God known to us. So let's look now at verse 14. And we read there, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 14 reconnects us with verse 1, and this is the last time John, in his gospel, John uses the Word as a title for Jesus. 
But here John declares that the Word, who we were told in verse 1 was in the beginning with God, the Word who was God, John tells us here that, that this Word became flesh. That is, Jesus, God the Son, became flesh. And the term flesh refers to the whole of human nature, both body and soul. And so John is telling us that Jesus, God the Son, became a human being. He, he became a man, and he was human all the way to the core in every way. And so Jesus, who is fully God, John is telling us, also became fully man. And it's extremely important for us to understand that when John says the word became flesh, he does not mean to imply in any way that Jesus ceased to be what he was before. In other words, this does not mean that Jesus surrendered his deity or in any way ceased to be God. Certainly, he temporarily laid aside the use of some of his divine attributes and, and the full display of his glory, although it did shine forth on occasions, but not always. But Jesus did not lay aside his deity or, or cease to be God. Rather, this means that to his eternal deity, Jesus added perfect humanity. Because Jesus Christ is fully God and he is fully man. He is not part God and, and part human, or a mixture of God and human, or even something halfway between God and human. He is God, and he is human. As one man said, the incarnation does not mean that God dwelt in a man, but that God became man. He became what he was not previously, though he never ceased to be all that he was before. And so Jesus is not God in a man, he is the God-man, one divine person with two natures. He is God and he is man, and he is a real man in every way. One commentator wrote, the plain meaning of these words is that our divine Savior really took human nature upon him in order to save sinners. He really became a man like ourselves in all things sin only accepted. Like ourselves, he was born of a woman, though born in a miraculous manner. Like ourselves, he grew from infancy to boyhood, and from boyhood to man's estate, both in wisdom and in stature. Like ourselves, he hungered, thirsted, ate, drank, slept, was wearied, felt pain, wept, rejoiced, marveled, was moved to anger and compassion. Having become flesh and taken a body, he prayed, read the scriptures, suffered being tempted, and submitted his will to the will of God the Father. And finally, in the same body, he really suffered and shed his blood, really died, was really buried, really rose again, and really ascended up to heaven. And yet, all this time, he was God as well as man. And you can sum it up by saying, Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man, united in one person forever, without confusion of his two natures. They are both perfect and distinct and indivisible, and yet unmingled and unmixed. The deity of Christ is not diminished by his humanity, nor is his humanity overpowered by his deity. The Word became Jesus Christ became a man, a real man, yet a sinless and perfect man. 
And here's the thing. This is not a temporary reality. You see, from the miraculous moment when Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, he never and will never cease to be human. He is forever both God and man in one person. Now think about that. So what does that mean? Well, this means that right now, at this moment, sitting on the throne in heaven is the God-man. And when you and I see Jesus, the Lord Jesus in heaven, he will be exactly the same God-man that he was when he walked on earth in the post-resurrection glorified body he had when he spent 40 days with the disciples before he ascended to heaven. Because you see, Jesus did not put on a human skin like a coat only to take it off when he got home to heaven. He became man, heart, soul, mind, and strength for all eternity. For all eternity. I mean, think of it. Throughout eternity, age after age, Jesus will be who he was on earth, fully and uniquely God, as well as being fully and perfectly man, at the same time in the same person, never again to be separated in all the glory that he had with the Father from all eternity. You say, can you explain that? No. It is beyond our ability to comprehend. It is by far the most amazing miracle of the entire Bible. I mean, far more amazing than the resurrection and more amazing even than the creation of the universe. As one theologian said, the fact that the infinite, omnipotent, eternal Son of God could become a man and join himself to a human nature forever, so that infinite God became one person with finite man, will remain for eternity the most profound miracle and the most profound mystery in all the universe. Now, will you for just a minute try to imagine why? Try to imagine why the Son of God decided that, yes, you know, he would become a human forever. Because he had existed for all eternity, the second person of the Trinity, in perfect, harmonious, and beautiful relationship with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, and yet he decided to humble himself to become a man, knowing that when he did, it would be forever? Why? I mean, why would he do this? Well, first and foremost, for the glory of God. And then because he deeply loved us. And that fact is seen in every detail of our Lord's life. The Word became flesh. You say, well, what's the big deal? Why is this so important? Well, he had to become a man to accomplish our redemption. The wages of sin is death. And for Jesus to pay that, he had to be a real man, a a real human being had to pay that. Not an angel, not some kind of apparition, but a real human being. He must, as a man, come and die for men. But on the other hand, he not only had to be man, he had to be God, because, because he was God, his death and his blood had infinite value, sufficient to cover all the sins of sinners. And that is why in Acts chapter 20, we're told that the church is something that God purchased with his own blood. 
I mean, of what infinite value is the blood of the Son of God? Well, because Jesus was God in the flesh, because he was the God-man, he alone could pay the debt that we owed to God. And so the Apostle John begins by saying, the Word became flesh. And we read that, and we've read it, and we've heard it, and we've studied it, and it no longer amazes us. And that, that, that should still hold us in awe. The Word became flesh. Jesus, the Son of God, became human without ceasing to be God. He is fully God, fully man, united in one person forever without confusion of his two natures. It's an incomprehensible mystery how those two natures of Christ interact, but we accept the truth of Scripture that the Word became flesh. And then John says, he dwelt among us. Jesus became a man and dwelt among us. And this, of course, is why the angel said in Matthew 1.23, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. He dwelt among us. The word uh, translated dwelt means to pitch a tent or to tabernacle. And so the eternal Son not only became a man, he also dwelt among men for a brief time. He pitched his tent among us, and, and for 33 years he lived in our world. He became one of us and grew in wisdom, stature, and favor with God and man. He was tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin. And of course, no human has ever been tempted like Jesus was. And because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And that is such an encouraging truth. Because it means that whatever we may be going through, he knows exactly what we're experiencing, he knows exactly how it feels, and he can sympathize with our weakness. And not only that, he can assure us that victory over sin and temptation is absolutely possible through the strength that he supplies. God and Jesus Christ dwelt among people. The man who lived with the disciples was God incarnate. I mean, God himself. And you know, the Apostle John was just so overwhelmed with this truth. I mean, he never could get over it. And he began his first epistle by describing the experience of hearing, seeing, looking upon, and touching the Word who became flesh and dwelt with them. So the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And then John says, we have seen His glory. We have seen His glory. And the glory of God is, is, the, is the beauty of His Spirit. It's not an aesthetic beauty or a material beauty, but rather it's the beauty that emanates from His character, from all that He is, the, the sum of all of His attributes and perfections. And the glory of God is manifested in all of his attributes together. Visibly, God's glory is, is sometimes displayed as a brighter, overpowering light. And when John says, we have seen his glory, he may be referring to the time that he and Peter and James saw Jesus blazing glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. But the disciples also saw his glory in the attributes or characteristics of God which were manifest in the life and ministry of Jesus. They saw Jesus' glory revealed in his miracles. 
But Jesus' glory was supremely revealed in the cross. When Judas went out of the upper room to betray him, Jesus said in John 13, 31, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. When the cross displayed God's perfect justice and amazing love like, like no other event in history, and it was there at the cross that we see the supreme revelation of Jesus' glory. And so underneath Jesus' earthly appearance as an ordinary Jewish carpenter, the disciples saw the indwelling glory of God. But to the outsider, Jesus was nobody special, but to the inner circle, he was the unique Son of God filled with glory. And in our text, John elaborates on Jesus' glory with two phrases. First of all, if you look back at verse 14, John says, we saw his glory as of the only Son from the Father. The only Son from the Father. It can be translated as the one and only, or simply the only as it is here in the ESV. And this word only means one and only. It means only in the sense of unique, radically distinctive, and without equal. It, it does not speak of, of origin, but rather it speaks of unique prominence. And Hebrews 11.17 uses it to refer to Isaac, who was not Abraham's only son, but Abraham's unique son, the son of promise. And John is the only New Testament author to use the term of Jesus. And by it he means that Jesus is the only or the unique son of God in a way that no one else is. He is in a class all by himself. He has no equal among men. Jesus is unique in every aspect of his being. He is unique in his person, birth, doctrine, works, miracles, death, resurrection, and, and future triumphs. I mean, we as human beings become sons of God through the new birth. But Jesus' sonship is unique. He is the eternal son, co-equal with the Father in his essence. And his glory, John says, was that of the one and only unique son from the Father. Now notice... In the rest of verse 14, John says, full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. The word full means full of or filled or, or completely full, abounding in. So it's not speaking about half measures, not fractions, not incomplete, but, but filled. Completely full of grace and truth. And of course, grace is the unmerited favor of God toward humanity. I mean, grace is the, the kindness and love of God, our Savior, toward man. One commentator said, grace is the very opposite of merit. Grace is not only undeserved favor, but it is favor shown to the one who has deserved the very opposite. And the Bible expresses this when it says that God shows his love for us, us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's grace. I mean, God is, is gracious toward us, not on the basis of what we have done, but solely because it is his nature to be gracious. And John tells us here that Jesus was full of grace. And this, of course, tells us what God is like. He is full of grace. And his grace is very, very great. That's why John uses the word full. The Son of God is full of grace and, and graciousness toward us sinners. Without He is this without compromising God's truth. 
Jesus is full of grace, and secondly, John says, he is full of truth. And grace and truth are together here for a reason. They have to be. Because it is only by believing the truth as it is in Jesus that you can experience God's grace and forgiveness. There is no salvation grace except to those who believe the truth of the gospel message. I mean, Paul said in Ephesians 1.13, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. In Colossians 1.5, Paul defined the gospel as the word of truth. I mean, people are saved when they come to the knowledge of the truth. On the other hand, those who perish do so because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. And everyone will be judged who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. I mean, John wants us to know that Jesus is the full expression of God's truth. A, you know, truth which was only partially revealed in the Old Testament. And Jesus declares the truth of God with absolute accuracy and perfection. And all the, the necessary truth to save is available in Christ. And as Jesus said of himself, I am the truth. He is the truth. And John tells us here that Jesus is full of grace and truth. His grace offers love and compassion to guilty sinners. His truth means that he warns of God's judgment if sinners do not repent and believe in him. And it is only by believing the truth as it is in Jesus that you can experience God's grace and forgiveness. And since Jesus is full of, is full of grace, you can come to him and, and know that he will welcome you. And because he is full of truth, you can trust his promises. He is full of grace and truth. And loved ones, understand this. If God dealt with us only according to truth, none of us would survive. But he deals with us on the basis of grace and truth. And this is really, really good news, isn't it? Really good news. Because think about it. Jesus could have become flesh. He could have chosen to become man as a judge and executioner. And all of us would have been found guilty before him and be sentenced to everlasting punishment. But that's not how he came, is it? No, Jesus, the eternal word, God the Son, became flesh to be our Savior and to be gracious to us according to God's truthfulness. What a wonderful, amazing truth it is that Jesus is full of, of grace and truth. And before expounding on this uh, even further in verse 16, in verse 15, we have a parenthetical statement about John the Baptist. If you'll notice verse 15, uh, John the Apostle wrote, John, speaking of John the Baptist, bore witness about him, speaking of Jesus. So John the Baptist bore witness about Jesus and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. You know, John the Baptist was the last of the Old Testament prophets. The prophets were until John. He's the last of the Old Testament prophets. And we're told here that he bore witness about Jesus. And in his testimony, John the Baptist said, He who comes after me 
ranks before me because he was before me. say, well, what does that mean? Well, John the Baptist, who was Jesus' cousin, was actually six months older than Jesus. And John the Baptist began his public ministry before Jesus began his ministry. Jesus came after John in terms of his birth and in terms of his public ministry. But John said, Jesus ranks before me. What does he mean? Well, he means this, that Jesus was of higher rank than John. Jesus is the greater one. And why would he say that? Well, because John said he was before me. In other words, Jesus existed from all eternity. He's the eternal Son of God. But the reference here, as in verses 1 and 2, is to Jesus' eternal preexistence. John the Baptist knew exactly who Jesus was. And in verses 19 to 36, the Apostle John gives John the Baptist's testimony in much more detail. Uh, here, he is merely summarizing it uh, because he's trying to make a point. He wants us to see that Jesus is greater than John the Baptist. And John was the greatest of all the prophets, so what John is wanting us to see is that Jesus is greater than John the Baptist and all the other prophets because Jesus is the eternal word, the preexistent Son of God. And now in verse 16, the Apostle John tells us that Jesus provides abundant grace for all who believe in him. Look at verse 16. John says, for from his, from Jesus' fullness, from Jesus' fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. The Greek word for fullness speaks of a, a superabundance and, and completeness. It's, it's the same word Paul used in Colossians when he wrote, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And so John is, is telling us that there is an infinite fullness, the very fullness of God in Christ. In other words, all there is of God, all there is of God, not one iota is missing, all the sum total of God, all that God is in his character and being, all the qualities of God's divine essence, all the divine power and attributes, the totality of the sum total of who and all that God is dwells in Christ. As one man said, there is laid up in Christ, as in a great storehouse, all that the believer needs, both for time and for eternity. And so if we're ever going to experience something of the fullness of God, then it must be through the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we receive Christ by trusting in him alone for salvation, we become children of God and thus heirs to all the riches of heaven, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, heirs to all the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And so in verse 16, John means all we who believe in Jesus have received an abundant supply of all that our souls need, and we have received that out of the fullness that is in Christ. I mean, it is from Christ and Christ alone that all of our spiritual needs for time and eternity have been supplied. And you'll notice in verse 16 that John says, from his fullness we have all received. We have all received. 
John is including himself because he wants to make it abundantly clear that no one is accepted. All who believe have received of Christ's fullness, his superabundance and, and completeness. And when John spoke of Jesus' fullness, he was affirming that he had never found Jesus lacking in any way. And listen, nothing can deplete Christ. No matter how much believers receive of him, he keeps on giving because his strength is, is not diminished by helping us. And so as believers, we don't need to seek any other source of spiritual power but Christ. Again, as Paul said in Colossians, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Uh, for, 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 and, and you have been filled in him. I mean, Christ himself fulfills our Christian life. So we don't need to seek anything beyond him. Nothing. We don't need to seek some further experience. You know, some further, deeper, you know, uh, existential knowledge of some kind. We don't need to seek any other source of spiritual power but Christ. For from his fullness, John says, we have all received. And then he illustrates it by saying, grace upon grace. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Grace upon grace. Think about that. Grace upon grace. That is an incredible statement. And it's a glorious truth. Grace upon grace. Abundant grace. God's grace heaped up, one upon another. It could be translated grace following grace, or grace for grace, or grace after grace, or grace in the place of grace. So that's what this is. It speaks of a never-ending supply of grace. Grace sufficient to meet every recurring need of every believer. Grace upon grace. And the image here is that of, of ocean waves just gently rolling over us again and again, just repeatedly. One wave of grace being constantly replaced by a fresh wave of grace. I mean, I love that. Grace upon grace. Grace after grace. After this grace is moved, there's more grace filling the vacuum. There's never any diminishing of grace. I mean, John is trying to convey to us that grace just keeps flowing over and over. He wants us to understand there's, there's no limit to the supply of God's grace. And the Christian life is just the constant reception of one evidence of God's grace replacing another. There's just a, a limitless supply or reservoir of grace with a limitless outflow. It's, it's grace upon grace. I mean, Christ just overflows with grace. And this overflowing fountain of grace is such an incredible gift to us. I mean, His grace is abundantly adequate. It can never be exhausted because He is, is full of grace. And we need to understand that, uh, that this truth is a reality. This is a reality. This is not merely a, a theological concept, something for us to discuss. Rather, this is a reality which we experience throughout our lives. Because you see, grace is not only for salvation. 
So many people think, yeah, by grace we're saved, and then, well, I don't know what they think after that. But grace is not only for salvation. Certainly, grace begins at salvation. We're saved by grace. But God's grace toward us does not stop once we become Christians. Thank the Lord for that. I mean, God's grace is active in our lives now, and it continues to be poured out on us, so, so much so that the Apostle says in Romans 5 that we stand in grace. In other words, uh, that, you know, we live in a constant state of grace. His grace just keeps coming. It, it's an overflowing fountain that brings richness to all of life throughout our lives. And so we've been saved by grace we also live by grace. I mean, just as we live physically, moment by moment, by drawing breaths of God's good air, so we must live spiritually, moment by moment, by drawing upon His grace. I mean, grace is given to us in terms of our daily needs. I mean, for example, you know, all those times when strength and courage just seem to be infused into our lives. Or when we're, we're discouraged and uh, we go to God's Word and His Word comforts us and, and heals us. That, that's God's grace. God's grace is always working in us. Always. And our life as Christians from start to finish is one of grace. I mean, we're not saved by divine grace and then sustained by, and preserved by human effort. I mean, that would be an absolute mockery of God's grace. And so grace is not only the beginning principle of the Christian life, it's also the continuing principle of the Christian life. Grace covers the entire Christian experience. We get into a relationship with God by grace. We live out that relationship day by day by day by grace. Grace that enables and empowers us to live and to minister and to fulfill our calling through the gifts that God gives. And loved ones, we don't ever want to fall into the trap of thinking that we can put grace behind us or we can move on beyond that. I mean, the daily provisions that we enjoy ultimately uh, do not come from our hard work, but from God who has chosen in His grace to bless us. You know, whatever good I accomplish in ministry comes because God graciously works through me. I mean, the decisive enabling power for life and for ministry and for all service is God's grace. And Jesus Christ is the channel of saving, enabling, and empowering grace. And there is not a role in life that can be lived the way God wants it lived apart from His enabling grace. You'll never be the husband or the wife or the father or the mother that you are supposed to be apart from God's enabling grace. You think you can do that on your own? Well, have at it. And then call me at the end of the week. And we'll get together for a counseling session. There's not a role in life that can be lived the way God wants it lived apart from his enabling grace. And you know, the hymn, Amazing Grace, puts it so well. You know, the first verse reminds us God's amazing grace has saved a wretch like me. But the same amazing grace undergirds all of my life. The fourth verse of Amazing Grace says, "'Tis grace hath brought me safe thus far, and what? Grace will lead me home.'" 
As the people of God, we stand in grace. I mean, we live out our lives in all its dimensions within the sphere of the blessing of grace. And when it comes time to die, there is grace for dying as well. I mean, grace comes constantly to us because we have believed the truth of the gospel. And we don't receive some small amount of grace either. It is grace upon grace, grace upon grace, sufficient grace. It's just a never-ending supply. Let me ask you something. You ever wonder how you're going to make it through 2024? You ever wonder how you're going to continue to live out the Christian life in this dark and dying world? You know, how you're going to keep contending for the faith, how you're going to keep running the race, keep fighting the fight? We can never do those things in our own strength. It will only be by the grace and strength which our Savior supplies. And John says, from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. So it's simply a matter of receiving God's grace and allowing God to put it to work within us. But at the same time, receiving grace is not a matter of just passively lying there. I mean, we have to take hold of grace and, and believe that we'll receive the promised abundance of his all-sufficient grace to help in the time of need. You say, well, how do we take hold of grace? Well, Hebrews 4.16. Let us then with confidence draw nearer to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So God's grace is always at work within us, but we can go to the throne of grace and find even more grace to help. We ask God for it, and then we believe that we're going to receive it. And we can ask for and receive grace upon grace, because as James tells us in James 4, 6, he gives more grace. There is always for the believer greater grace. And this, without doubt, is one of the most comforting truths in all of Scripture. It means that there will always be enough grace, regardless of our situation or need. Always. As one man said, for daily need, there is daily grace. For sudden need, there is sudden grace. And for overwhelming need, there is overwhelming grace. We are saved by grace. We live by grace. And we are absolutely dependent upon God's all-sufficient grace in and for all that we do. For from his fullness we have all received. Grace upon grace. God's grace just keeps being poured out and poured out and poured out on our lives. And now in verse 17, if you'll notice, John tells us that grace and truth came through Jesus. Look at verse 17. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Here, John definitely identifies the eternal word of verses 1 and 14 with Jesus, whom he names here in verse 17. And in this verse, John is drawing a contrast between what was given through Moses and what came through Jesus Christ. One of the reformers said, the very fact that the apostle draws an antithesis between the law given through Moses and grace and truth which came through Jesus Christ is an evidence that the law lacked both of these things, grace 
and truth. And so first of all, John says, looking back at the verse, for the law was given through Moses. And the law that was given through Moses was not a display of grace. It commanded men to obey, and then it condemned them to death if they failed to do so. There was no wiggle room with the law. You obey every law. If not, if you break the law in one point, you're as guilty as if you've broken it all. So break one law, you're condemned. The law commanded men to obey and condemned them if they failed to do so. I mean, the law told men what was right, but the law did not give them the power to do it. It was given to show men that they were sinners, but it couldn't save them from their sins. The law revealed God's justice, but it didn't make his mercy known. It, it testified to God's righteousness, but it didn't exhibit God's grace. It was God's truth, but not the full truth about God himself. I mean, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And we never read, by the law is the knowledge of God. No, the law came in to increase the trespass. Sin through the commandment became sinful beyond measure, Paul said. The law made known the sinfulness of sin. It condemned the sinner, but it didn't fully reveal God. It exhibited God's righteous hatred of sin and his holy determination to punish it. It exposed the guilt and the corruption of the sinner, but it couldn't help the sinner. It left the sinner doomed and condemned. Now, someone might say, well, you know, it was gracious of God to give the law of Moses to Israel. And, and of course, that's true. It was gracious of God to give the law because it's by the law that we come to understand our sin. And, and that is a great grace from God to reveal our sin to us through the law. I wouldn't debate that. But so far as the law itself is concerned, there is no grace. And there is no truth of redemption in the law. Certainly there was grace and truth in the Old Testament. At the very beginning, God dealt according to grace and truth with Adam and Eve immediately after their sin. It was nothing but grace that sought them and, and provided them with a covering. And it was truth that pronounced sentence upon them and expelled them from the garden. Noah, we're told, found grace in the eyes of the Lord. God dealt according to grace and truth with Israel on the Passover night in Egypt. It was grace that provided shelter for them beneath the blood. It was truth that righteously demanded the death of an innocent substitute in their place. I mean, in the Old Testament, when men were saved, they were saved by grace through faith in Christ, the Redeemer who was to come. They were looking forward to Christ, just like we are looking, we look back. Every person ever saved in the history of the world has been saved by God's grace. The grace that Christ exhibited and purchased at the cross extended back as much as it extends forward. And so even in ancient days when men were saved by uh, men were saved by grace, but men were not and never could be saved through the Mosaic law. Because that is not why the law was given. The law was never meant to be a means of salvation or sanctification. The law was only a schoolmaster to guide men toward who? Christ. The law was a schoolmaster to guide men toward Christ. 
So there was no grace and truth, or there was grace and truth, there was grace and truth in the Old Testament, but not in the law of Moses. And this is why John says the grace, and the definite article the is in the Greek text, it's not in our English text. But this is why John says the grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And these two, grace and truth, are inseparably joined together because you cannot have one without having the other. I mean, there are many people who do not like salvation by grace. They, they think instead you must earn it. And then there are those, on the other hand, who would tolerate grace if they could have it without the truth. But neither one of these things can be. I mean, those who reject the truth reject grace. Those who reject grace reject the truth. And those who reject grace and truth reject Jesus, through whom grace and truth have come. And so grace and truth are inseparable. And John tells us that grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And then one final verse, verse 18. And look what John tells us here. No one has ever seen God. The only God who was at the Father's side, He has made Him known. You might be thinking, wait a minute. You may be wondering why John says that no one has ever seen God. And Paul says that no one has ever seen God or can see God. But Exodus 24.10 says that the leaders of Israel saw God. Isaiah 6 says Isaiah saw God. And yet it is true that no man can see God and live as God himself said to Moses in Exodus 33.20. So what's the deal? Well, the answer is that no one has seen the essence of God in his unmitigated glory. That is, in a full and complete way. But some people did see the partial revelations of God in the Old Testament. I mean, those who got a vision of God either saw Christ in his pre-incarnate glory, or they had an obscured vision of the glory around God's throne, or like Moses, they saw his hinder parts or his back as the glory passed by. But those who got even such a limited uh, vision of God almost always were terrified by the experience. So John is correct when he says that no one has ever seen God. But then look what he says. The only God who is at the Father's side. The only God who is at the Father's side. No one has seen God, has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. So John is referring to two different persons here as God, as he did in verse 1. The first is God the Father. No one has ever seen God. And then... He says, the only God. Well, who's that? The word only is the same word used in, in verse 14, and it means the one and only, only in the sense of, uh, of unique, radically distinctive, one of a kind. So who is this? Who was it in verse 14? Jesus. Jesus, the only or unique Son from the Father. So it's literally the unique God or God's unique Son. Because there's no other son like him. He always occupies a place of special nearness to God the Father. And John says, uh, the only God, or Jesus, the unique son, is at the Father's 
side. Literally, it reads, he is in the chest of the Father. He is in the chest of the Father. This speaks of the closeness and the personal intimacy of the Father and the Son. And the imagery here is that of the son as a child in close dependence on his father enjoying a a close and warm relationship with him. It also reflects the image of two close companions enjoying a meal together. Because according to ancient custom, the, the one who reclined next to the master at a meal was the one dearest to him. And all of this speaks of the nearness and the oneness to the father which Jesus has enjoyed with him from all eternity. And so no one has ever seen God. But the only God, Jesus, the unique Son of God, has seen him as closely as he can be seen. Not only is he in the chest of the Father, but he and the Father are one. No one has ever seen God. The only God, Jesus, the unique Son of God, who was at the Father's side, he, John says, notice, has made him known. He, Jesus, has made him, the Father, known. Or if you're reading the New American Standard, he has explained him. And the phrase, made him known, that's one word in the Greek. And it's the word from which we get our English word exegete or exegesis, which is the method or practice of interpreting Scripture. And it means to make known and explain. It means to inform, to relate, to tell fully, to interpret, you know, to give the meaning. So you see what John's telling us? John is telling us that Jesus exegetes the Father. That is, Jesus reveals the Father to us. He makes Him known. He explains Him as the only Son could do. Because everything that can be said about God the Father can be said about God the Son. Because in Jesus dwells all the fullness of God, all all the wisdom, glory, power, love, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth of the Father. In Christ, God the Father is known. In Christ, God the Father is known. Because as Paul said in Colossians 1, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Or as the writer of Hebrews said, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. In other words, Jesus is the perfect imprint. He is the exact representation of the nature and essence of God in time and space. Jesus is the exact likeness of God. And Philippians 2 tells us he is in the very form of God. And understand, when the Bible speaks of Jesus as the image of God or the exact imprint of God, this does not have anything to do with what God looks like. Because God is spirit and cannot be seen. Jesus is the image and the exact imprint of God in the sense that Jesus possesses the very substance, nature, and character of God, so that when you look at Jesus, you see God in the sense that Christ is the revelation of what God is really like. And so just as a word explains an unseen thought, so Jesus, the word, explains the unseen God to us. So you want to know about God? 
Do you want to know what God is like? And of course we do. Well, John is telling us that God is like Jesus. Because Jesus is God. And he has been enjoying the closest possible fellowship with the Father for all eternity. And he came into this world to show us what the Father is essentially like. Jesus makes the Father known to us. I mean, isn't that one of the most incredible things that you've ever heard? You know, here's the Father, here's the Son, and they're, they're one God. You know, the, 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 the one God in fellowship with one another in the mystery of the, of the communion of the Trinity with the Holy Spirit. And Jesus Christ has come into the world to make something of that mystery known to us. As much as we as finite men are able to comprehend. I mean, that's just incredible. It really is beyond comprehension. And so when men saw Jesus while he was here upon the earth, they saw God. They heard God speak. They felt God's love and, and tenderness, his compassion, his, his mercy. God's thoughts and attitudes toward mankind have been made known by Christ. I mean, all that Jesus is and does interprets and explains who God is and, and what he does. And so the simplest believer who sees Jesus Christ sees the glory of God full of grace and truth. Or as Jesus said in John 14, 9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. You know, in the past... God in the fullness of his glory was unmanifested. No man had seen him. But now God is fully revealed because the Son has made him known to us. And so how deeply grateful we should be for the fact that, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, where? In the face of Jesus Christ. We see the glory of God in Christ. We see who God is in Christ. And so how thankful we should be for the grace that has brought us out of darkness into His marvelous light because the God whom no man has seen at any time has been made known by the Son. Loved ones, how then ought we to honor and reverence and worship and adore the Lord Jesus? I mean, there was a song we used to sing, I stand in awe of you. You know, I stand, I stand in awe of you. Do we stand in awe of him? Or is our familiarity with Jesus and, and who he is and, and what he is and what he does, has it become just so familiar to us that uh, it's boring, uninteresting, Because every time we hear about who Jesus is, we should stand in awe and in utter amazement of, uh, of Christ. It should make grace that much more amazing. I mean, why should anybody believe in Jesus? Why should you believe in Jesus? 
because of who he is. I mean, why as, uh, why as believers should we worship and adore Jesus? Why should we love him more than life itself and expend our lives uh, loving him and serving him? Why? Why should we do this? Because of who he is. Well, who is he? What has John shown us in the first 18 verses of his gospel? That Jesus is the eternal word. He wasn't just a Jewish carpenter. He's the eternal word. It's the second person of the Trinity, the creator of all that exists, and nothing that's been made uh, was made without him. In him was life. He's the source and the origin of life. And that life was the light of men. It shines in the darkness. Jesus is the true light, the genuine light. He gives light to everyone. And what a testimony to the depravity of man that he was in the world, yet the world didn't know him. And even worse, his own people didn't receive him. But the glorious good news is uh, that to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, Jesus gives the right to become children of God. And that doesn't happen by uh, human will or effort. We're born again. We're born of God. It's a work of the Spirit of God in our souls, regenerating us, giving us spiritual life and faith to believe. And John's told us today that Jesus is the incarnate Word, the Word who became flesh, full of grace and truth. And He's greater than all the prophets. And He provides abundant grace, grace upon grace, grace upon grace, overflowing grace for all who believe in Him. He's the one through which grace and truth have come. And He has made known to us the Father. He is he's God's ultimate revelation of Himself to us. And John didn't write these things to satisfy our curiosity or to stimulate uh, intellectual or theological discussion. Rather, He wants us to know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, so that unbelievers will believe in Him for eternal life, and also so that we as believers will fall on our face before Him with the same love we had for Him at the beginning, and love Him and worship Him, and spend our entire lives living for Him. I mean, are you bored with Jesus? And if you say no, well, is your, is your love for Christ, your, your, your pursuit of Him, is that evident in every area of your life? Sometimes we answer questions too quickly. We need to think about them so we can honestly answer because there's a great casual familiarity in the church today. Oh, you know, my prayer through this study, that we're, this series that we're doing, is that God will, uh, through His Word, give us a fresh glimpse of who Jesus is. That He'll just reveal more of Christ's glory, more of His beauty, more of who He is and, and what He is and all that He does. 
so that that will spur us on to pursue Christ uh, with all that is within us, because that's what the Christian life is. It is the pursuit of Jesus, pursuing after him like a lover. You know, may God work these things uh, in our hearts and lives. And for anyone here this morning who is not a believer, if you're not a believer, you know it in your heart of hearts. So my question to you is, do you, why don't you believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Why haven't you trusted in Christ alone for salvation? I'm not saying, why haven't you prayed some prayer or signed a card, because that may or may not mean one thing. Why haven't you trusted in Christ? Because he's offering to you today the gift of salvation, the gift of his grace, the forgiveness of sin and eternal life. But it involves humbling yourself and surrendering your life to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. It involves repenting and believing. That's what the Bible says, isn't it? When they asked in the Bible, what must we do to be saved? What did they say? Repent and believe. Repent and believe. And repentance is a change of mind that results in a change of direction. So if you're not a believer this morning, change your mind. Change your mind about Christ. Turn around and run to him as fast as you can. And put your faith and trust in him alone for salvation because there's no other hope. And our prayer is that you will do so today. On behalf of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Bible Church of Palisadro, we hope and pray this study will help you continue growing in the Word. If you've been blessed by today's message, or if you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. You can call us at 530-547-4400. Again, 530-547-4400. Or write to us at P.O. Box 837, Palisadro, California, 96073. You can also email us through the church website at calvarybiblepc.org calvarybiblepc.org Thank you for listening and may God richly bless you. It's your love that makes me see It's your word that comforts me By your blood we have been set